Hello and welcome to The Run-In. As usual, Will and I are in our lockdown locations and here to bring you all the latest from the orienteering world. But this week, I think we should head straight to our interview. To be honest, not much has been going on in the orienteering world. But a few weeks ago, we had the opportunity to chat to Graham Gristwood with 14 world championships under his belt, including that relay gold medal from 2008. We had real real difficulty choosing which parts of his career to quiz him on so enjoy the interview uh, so thanks um graham for joining us on the podcast is your training much interrupted at the moment presumably fair bit with all with all the restrictions going on but how are you keeping well first of all thanks for having me on i've been enjoying the podcast over the last weeks and months and um yeah it's a strange time at the moment so on one hand i've got kind of quite a lot of spare time because i'm not working so much but on the other hand uh motivation's a bit up and down as as i'm sure most people are finding it's uh it's yeah it's really challenging sometimes to to know what to make of the situation yeah are you were you kind of aiming for particular races this summer and then you know you've had to kind of rearrange your whole training schedule around everything uh well i don't really have a training schedule these days it's more i just try and get out and do something every day depending on how i'm feeling but obviously yeah none of the races that i was planning to do for the next three or four months are going to happen and obviously all the international calendar has been scrapped so yeah at this point it's hard to know what the next race is going to be it's been really hard coming into this interview, knowing you've got so many things you've done in your orienteering career so far. Uh, it's hard, been hard to kind of know what things we wanted to focus on. But let's go with like a quite an open question to start with. And do you, what's your most memorable race? <laughs> so um, I was doing a little bit of preparation for this interview and I got thinking about it. And it's really hard. As you say, I've kind of had a long career and it's really hard to nail it down to one. So I've, I've come up with a couple of thoughts um, and I've got one which is probably the answer. Uh, so if you don't mind, I'll just go through a couple. Yeah, no, go, go for it. it. Um, so uh, first of all, a bit of a flippant one in um, response to Murray's interview the other week where he talked about this uh, this future Champions Cup race in 2000 when uh, when I rocked up as a bottom year M16 and beat all the... Uh, bottom year M18 and beat all the other juniors in, uh, in Haywood. That's <laughs> one that still sticks in the mind, actually. Um, <laughs> in Haywood, which was a good Prime Midlands area. area. Which yeah. then went on to be one of my training areas when I was at university. That, that's surprisingly good as well, yeah. I'm going to yeah, say. Yeah, it is. It is good. Uh, it used to be one of my really closest areas to home when I was at Warwick Uni. Um, so the kind of going through a few of my international ones which really stand out, obviously the first World Championships in Sweden in 2004, because my main memory of that is that I have never, ever been so nervous before or since, before anything. The only thing that kind of even came close was probably my driving test. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what, what, what made that so, uh, so nervous then? Obviously, the first walk, the World Champs, that's a, that's a massive thing. But, you know, how, how come it's never reached that peak since? Um... I think it's a lot of reasons. You know, I, I wasn't especially aiming for world championships that year. Um, I, I went to the selection races kind of on a whim and got into the team still as a junior. And, uh, you know, you rock up to world championships in Sweden, not really having prepared very much for it. And it was early days of sprint orienteering as well. And it was a forest sprint and you look left and right and there's like world champions everywhere. And I just, <laughs> I just felt like totally unprepared and kind of out of my depth and, uh, and I, I mean, honestly, I've never felt so bad physically, just from kind of a, um, a psychological point of view. Yeah, no, I, I empathise with that entirely. <laughs> and then, 
And then my my next one is actually along similar lines. Is I then ran the the sprint in 2006 in Denmark, and that was memorable for a really a different reason because I'd actually prepared a bit for it that year. And then uh, I got into the final, and I was kind of starting about halfway through the, through the field, so it was probably about 20 people after me. And what happened that time is that I got to the spectator control, and they announced that I was in the lead, and that was one thing I had never prepared for in my life. And um, so. I then went and made a huge mistake straight afterwards, but that was like nice. something that, that was really a memorable thing, being in the lead at the World Champs for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, the World Champs relay in 2008, I'm sure we'll talk about later, but obviously that was fairly memorable. Um, then the, the one that's kind of not a World Champs that stands out is that I ran the World Cup final in France in a place called Volcania. Uh, which is probably the, actually the most memorable from the course perspective. And that's essentially a map which was entirely shades of green and contours and stone and very little else. And nice. it, was a, it, was, it was a long distance and it was uh, one of these ones where Thierry caught up second, third and fourth place, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. What, year, what year was that in? Uh, I think it was probably seven, eight, nine, somewhere around there. I can't yeah, remember exactly. Pre World Champs 2011. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I remember seeing the map. Yeah, it looks uh, rotten. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic! It's the only map that I have on my wall. All <laughs> oh, right, well, praise indeed. Yeah, and then, but then my real answer is actually the World Champs in Scotland, the relay, uh, for several mm. reasons. All oh, right, mean, yeah. Home World Championships, just the atmosphere was incredible. The course was really good. The forest was beautiful that day, and I had a really good performance. And then we ended up coming fourth, which was just fantastic. So I think that is probably the most memorable day I can think of. Because you were second leg, is that right? Yep, that's right. So Scott ran the first, and then I ran second, then Ralph ran the last leg. Yeah, and w- had you done any of the individual races that week, or had you just been prepping for the relay? Uh, no, I ran the middle and the long middle. as well. Oh, the long as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. the long came after... Yeah, that's right. The long was so, yeah, in Glen yeah. Africa was the last race. So, what was that kind of build-up like then? Obviously, Darnaway was the use of the middle and the and the relay. What was that kind of build-up into that relay moment like? Uh, well, so obviously, Home World Championships was kind of the biggest thing that kind of I'd ever prepared for. Really, I'd put more into that year than any other, and um, I went in in the shape of my life. I would say uh, the the middle. I actually um, I went and watched the mixed sprint relay a few days before my first race, and I got a bit of a sore throat and a bit of a cold, which was kind of an absolute rookie error. <laughs> and, and so, um, so you know, partly it's one of these psychological things. You know, you just you kind of looking for excuses and whatever else. But whatever it was, it was just uh, going into the middle. I was kind of slightly not feeling 100%, but I still went out and did well. I just made one small mistake, which cost me a really good performance, but I knew I was in good shape. And then I knew we had a really good team in the in the relay, and we did a really mm. good performance, and we really earned that fourth place. I think anything better would have been a big ask. Uh, I was a bit disappointed with my performance in the long. I just couldn't quite get it all out physically on the day. Yeah, well, Glen Africa yeah. is a pretty tough area to get it, to physically get it all out of yourself, I think. Because mentally yeah, there's so many things yeah. probably just telling you to slow down. Yeah, and it's one of those races where I was probably out in the forest for over 100 minutes and I didn't see a single person. Oh, that's quite special. That's totally, uh, yeah, I, I had no kind of 
the preconceptions that that was going to be a, a possibility. I thought I would be seeing, you know, catching up people or being caught by people, but I didn't see a single person. Mm. And, and the home world champs is obviously quite a unique experience. There's only, you know, there's very few people who actually get to race them. How did you, when you're going through the arena passages, you know, or the relay or, or you're starting that long distance, how do you calm yourself down in that moment? How do you mentally just keep yourself on a level where you're still going to be able to perform? Well, I think it's the the relay that stands out for me because actually in the middle and the long, there weren't any spectator passages. There, there were kind of remote starts and there were no mm. arena passages at all. So oh, yeah. um, it was kind of a bit unusual from that perspective. They'd chosen the terrain. I mean, Glen Afric, you, you can't really have a spectator passage. Uh, and the start was kind of the other end of the map. And that was, that was actually quite an interesting day as well because the one of the minibuses that was sh- shuttling people to the starts mm. broke down. I don't know if you remember oh, yes. that. I, yeah, I do. So my start All the got starts got by pushed later. Yeah. Yeah. And my, I so I had, to, I, had, I had to walk 3K to the start uh, and have a, an hour delay. So that was kind of interesting as well. <laughs> Excellent. How prep. did you deal with How did you mentally deal with that? Um. Uh, <laughs> In 2015, I kind of I'd already been to quite a few world championships, so I knew what it was mm. all about, and I, I kind of was in the frame of mind that I wasn't going to get stressed by things like that. There's mm. a, a really good old story from Yvette Baker that when World Champs was in Inverness in '99, uh, the bus driver on the way to the start got lost, and she actually mm. got a map out of her bag and navigated the bus to the start for for, <laughs> for the driver. So. Um, uh, you just got to not worry about those things. There's nothing you can do to control it. So you just worry about your own performance and getting to the start, um, going through the the normal kind of warm-up routines and getting to the race. So it, I, that didn't affect me at all, I would say. How did you get into it? Into orienteering in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. I started orienteering um, with my father, and it was basically before I was able to walk he used to carry me around and then when I could walk uh, I you know went around the string course and then um, kind of just went with my father every time he went and then started going out with Southeast Junior squad a bit and then um, got into the the junior team obviously Uh, and just kind of yeah so I've been orienteering as long as I can remember I've always loved it Uh, I wasn't particularly um, I wasn't particularly talented, let's say, physically uh, in the beginning, and I certainly never did any running training until I was kind of in my teens. And funnily enough, that's when I started getting a bit better and a bit more competitive orienteering. <laughs> <laughs> but that's such a contrast that that start. I mean, I'm from similar neck of the woods, and it's such a contrast to then you going off and then doing mountain running um, uh, and doing that very well. I, was that how did you manage to ad- ad- adapt to those things? Is it just good training, living in different parts of the world? Yeah, I, know, I kind of really got into mountain running, particularly when I moved to Scotland. I'd always kind of been interested in uh, pursuing other forms of running, and I'd always had this ambition, kind of I thought it might be a bit too challenging for me, but I always wanted to, to represent Britain in something other than orienteering. And mm. um, my my goal originally actually was to do it in cross country and I spent quite a few years kind of trying to improve that um but then because of various injury issues uh and then obviously moving out to Sweden kind of put put pay to that a little bit and I kind of put that on hold but then I when I moved back to Sweden uh, back to Scotland I kind of decided to give hill running and mountain running a bit of a go and I was doing pretty well and I just 
kind of on a, on a whim I thought oh, I'll go and try out for the for the <laughs> national team I went to the trial race and uh, I kind of I was right on I thought I was going to be right on the edge of selection and so I tried really hard and kind of actually um, gutted myself a bit too much a bit early on in the race and thought I'd blown it but then I actually managed to sneak a selection to the, to the world champs team um, which was which was fantastic um, and then I got in again the year after as well with a bit better preparation and actually you know did a little bit better in the trial and really earned my my place and uh, so yeah that was kind of um, a real ambition of mine to achieve to try and do something outside of orienteering as well to prove that orienteers can do a bit of running yeah and how does that international kind of set up and, and the guess the, the competition itself compare to international orienteering uh, I mean, there's some similarities and some differences. It, there's only one competition, or certainly when I did it, there was only one race, and you go out for essentially just a long weekend with your team. Uh, you walk the course the day before or two days before. Um, you've got all your nice Nike kit. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves stash. Yeah. and I mean, the big difference, I think, actually, was all the teams were staying in the same hotel, and I think the hotel was provided by the organisers. Mm. Uh, which was fantastic so I got to meet a load of people from all the different countries and um, so I, I went to Italy and to Bulgaria with the team and we also had uh, a week for before Bulgaria where we went out to an altitude training camp in Italy because the the race was at altitude and so that was really interesting spending just over a week with kind of the rest of the British team high up in the mountain in Italy that was a, a really nice experience yeah oh that'd be so cool I want to go back to some of the things you said about Walk 2004 sprint and feeling very, very nervous on the start line. What kind of key things did you learn in those first, you know, few world championships that enabled you to not be as nervous again and and kind of perfect, uh, you know, Im- improve those performances in the world championships? A lot of it's about experience and about confidence and knowing that um, if you're good enough to be in the British team, then you're good enough to be competitive on a, a world level, I would say. I think uh, a lot of it was also just about getting more, more experience in more international competitions. So I ran a lot of the the World Cups. I ran in the Nordic Championships, which don't happen anymore. Uh, I ran a lot of competitions in Scandinavia. I did a lot of kind of um, the relay competitions just anything that kind of gets you into those high pressure uh, high stress situations uh, racing against other good guys in the world and I would say the other thing that really helped me which was probably kind of underappreciated underrated by a lot of athletes is I worked with a a psychologist we had a psychologist who worked with the the British squad at that time called Steve Sylvester who's now gone on to work with a lot of football teams cricket teams etc he was um really successful with with a, quite a few of the athletes at that time in helping them kind of get the best out of themselves on the international scene mm. what kind of particular things um were you able to work on with him so a lot of his things were about mastery so it's not about the result at all it's about um getting out the best performance that you're able to on that day and kind of being the master of the performance so he, he used like Thierry a, a lot of when he was kind of talking about the person who's the the most masterful um yeah a lot of things kind of around appreciating that why we're doing what we're doing that was quite an important thing 
Mm. And whether we're doing it because we we want to, because we're trying to get some reward from it, or whether we're trying to get a result from it, or whether we're just doing it because we're enjoying it. And and with that in mind, do you think your orienteering philosophy or your approach to orienteering has has changed a lot over the years? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think that a lot of it is down to him and a lot of other people I've worked with over the years as well. Uh, I think definitely uh, it's very easy to be results focused um, and to be disappointed if the results don't go your way. But you've really got to be more focused on what you can achieve and whether you've achieved your potential and and also whether you've had fun as well. Mm. Yeah, very important. Let's talk about that 2008 relay um, with also uh, another Czech walk coming up next year. What are your main memories from, from that relay? So I actually don't really remember my run very well so much. Uh, I mean, I, I, I had a good race. I... I ran the first leg and I came back, I think, in fourth place and kind of almost within sight of, I think I was kind of on the run-in at the same time as the, the first team. Uh, and, and I kind of remember vaguely that John Duncan had a good race and kept in touch. And then I kind of, my main memory is of kind of waiting for Jamie to come in because we knew that he was in the fight for the medals. And we knew that Thierry at that time was out in front and we knew that Jamie was probably fighting for second, third and fourth. And then mm. as, it, as it progressed, Thierry had a, a bit of a lead and then it seemed that Jamie was fighting with Valentin Novikov from Russia for the, for the silver. And then suddenly out of nowhere, Thierry kind of pulled up and nobody really knew what was going on. And then kind of it seemed like it was a race between Jamie and Valentin. And then suddenly at the second last control, Jamie appeared out of the woods kind of on his own, probably 30 seconds in front of the Russians and... I remember running down the run-in with Jamie and not really knowing what was going on, not really believing it, but um, yeah, I've got pictures of it and video of it, so it must have happened. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and what, um, well, I guess with what coming next year, would you, uh, would you feel like that's kind of going if you, if to, you, if you make the team next year and, and go and maybe even run the relay or, or the middle or the long next year in... Um, in Czech Republic, would you feel that's kind of almost bringing your career full circle? You know, it's kind of back to where it all, uh, maybe the peak or the high point? I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously a World Champs medal must be the, the high point of my orienteering career. Um, obviously well, I my word's love... not yours, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, I would love to have another medal to, to kind of wrap it all up with, but um, we'll have to see about that. Yeah, Czech Republic's been good to me. I've always enjoyed orienteering there. I enjoyed the European Champs there a few years ago as well. So I, I'm really looking forward to, to the World Champs next year. I would like to run that if I can make it into the team again. And I think the terrain looks super exciting. And of course, I would like to be in the relay team. And I think that um, there's a lot of good teams who have a chance of doing well in the relay, but Britain is definitely one of those. Mm. Once you've gone to World Champs and and what you yeah you've gone down the running with Jamie and John you've you've got that medal on the podium you know how do you how do you start up the next season of training again for the for the next year you know it's, did you find that tough did, was it easy to jump straight back into it was a whole new motivation for you oh god that was uh, more than ten years ago that's a difficult <laughs> question well <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I certainly didn't have any problems with motivating myself to train back in those days, I think. I um, certainly had individual aspirations, and at that point I hadn't kind of 
achieved um, so much individually as I wanted to, certainly. Uh, and of course, it's one thing to get a World Champs relay medal with Jamie Stevenson in your team. It's another thing to do it without him. So that's obviously a, another big challenge as well. Mm. Mm. What was the prep like for the relay that week? You know, what what tactics did you guys go in there with? Was it nice to perform some Gigi on first leg? John's going to cling on. Jamie's going to you know be in there for a medal. Or or what were the conversations before? If you can remember them, obviously it wasn't you know yesterday. So my memory for the relay preparation, it started actually in um, in Denmark two years before. And I remember that the uh, the British team kind of had a pretty underwhelming performance that day. And I basically I turned around and said to the coach, what do I need to be doing to get in that team? Uh, coach was Dave Peel at the time. And he said, you need to turn yourself into a, a really consistent, stable first leg runner. And... Um, and that, that's basically what I set out to do over the following two years because I wanted to be running in that team with John and Jamie. And um, so for two years, I ran first leg every time, chance I got and I kind of got, I improved at it. I got uh, more stable and more um, reliable to the point where I knew that going into the World Champs, I knew kind of three or four months before I was going to be running the first leg and that all I needed to do was to, to come back at kind of in the first group and give John and Jamie the situation they needed and I knew that uh, John was perfectly capable of running around the second leg with the, the fastest guys and then with Jamie on last leg you know anything can happen it could be uh, if it goes well for him then it could be anything any colour of medal mm. and did that play into what you were doing over in Scandinavia at the time you are obviously running uh, I'll say obviously but you you're running first leg for for your Swedish club in um, in 2007, 2008 at Eucla, I think you came back second, or you were definitely top five uh, a couple yeah. of times on first leg. Yeah, so I was I was fifth in 2007 and second in 2008 on first leg. Yeah, I mean Eucla and Tim Miller, they're fantastic, but they are quite different to international relays. <laughs> uh, they tend to be quite a bit longer and a lot more people. And although there's very good people, it's not like every single one of them is a, a world superstar. So they are fantastic training, but the they're only so relevant I would say yeah touching maybe more on some of those Scandinavian relays they've got such a like a, a team feeling to them what what did you maybe what are some of your your highlights from some of those and why are they so special yeah I mean Eucla has to be one of the high points of any orienteer's career uh, I've done about 13 or 14 Eucla's now and it, every one of them is just mind-blowing when you've got kind of 20,000 people running plus another 10,000 spectating and these huge arenas. And they manage to always find some really epic terrain as well that's kind of right mm. next to this huge arena. And um, I've, I've been lucky that I've run for some really good clubs over the years and I've managed to kind of quite often be fighting in the top 5, 10, 20 of, of Eucla and that that's just a phenomenal experience and then obviously I lived in, in Sweden for many years and Tia Miele is the, the pinnacle of the Swedish calendar um, the 10 man relay and again that's just um, something that's pretty incredible when you see that the whole club works towards this this one goal for mm. a whole year or more and then uh, it all comes down to that one night with these 10 guys who have kind of, for a lot of them that is the pinnacle of their year because they won't be running internationally and so yeah as you say it's a real real team effort uh, a really nice thing for the whole club to to work towards for the whole year when you've got your club training in the dark in the in the winter 
in the on the weekday nights and you go out together with your with your teammates and there's a lot of chat around who's going to run which leg who's doing the night training who's you know who's faster or more stable and what what's more important on the different legs uh yeah so the, the talking about it and the tactics are kind of half of the fun on it as well if you've not been you can't really fully understand kind of the scale and and the extent that people are you know taking part from these Scandinavian countries just how how popular and how big it is yeah I mean Euclid is 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 um the only thing you can kind of put it on a par with is something more along the lines of like um like a London marathon or something like that where you get kind mm. of people from all walks of life who who have it as their kind of challenge for the year or or like a, as a com- you enter as a company team or as um a team with your your friends uh, it's not only orienteering clubs who enter and obviously there's teams from all around the world as well i i would say that if you're a serious orienteer and you haven't been to Euclid, then make the like take the opportunity to get out there and see it at least once uh, and, and would you say that kind of living in Sweden has given you that real good base for the uh, for the NITO that you've been doing so successfully over the years then, Gigi? Because I think we said on the um, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, you've now won seven British night titles in a row. Uh, well, obviously, Will, that's because you haven't turned up to many of them so far. Well, well, <laughs> well uh, yeah, let's, let's assume <laughs> no that comment. and that'll make, rub, rub my ego a bit. <laughs> Well, well, the first thing is you've got to be in it to win it, and um, I, I tend to turn up to the British Night Champs, which a lot of the, the guys in the team don't do, unfortunately. So I, I love night orienteering. I think it's fantastic. Uh, I, I didn't do a lot when I was younger, and actually I pretty much started doing a lot when I moved out to, to Sweden, and um, so I did a lot during that time, and then when I came back to Scotland, I've been doing a lot ever since and we're, I'm really lucky that we have a good kind of night orienteering scene up here as well. But I do think that it's um, it's about the best technical training you can do. I think that if you can do night orienteering on a regular basis through the winter, that's a, a really good technical base for the rest of the year. And I think also what I find is that when you've got your kind of local training areas, you tend to learn them pretty quickly if you train too much on them in the daytime. But actually, mm-hmm. if you run on them at night, it's really hard to learn anything about them because it always looks different mm. yeah definitely you said at the start that you don't really structure the training too much on the on the week to week now as much as you did but would that be something that you make sure you retain in your training on a regular basis getting getting out at night and doing that technical practice oh yeah um night orienteering is always in the calendar so we have um, a fourth valley have a night series every winter which is kind of every second week so that's always one of the first things in the calendar and then I'll tend to go out on my own or with a small group of friends kind of in the alternate weeks as well to to, to make it kind of a, a, a weekly thing and then you know a bit of kind of occasional weekend stuff as well a few races and then obviously when you go out on training camps with the kind of Scandinavian clubs there's always quite a lot of night orienteering as well so I'd say that I average during the winter at least once a week if not twice that's quite a lot for a for a GB athlete, I'd say. Because like you say, most of us, I guess, skip it. Yeah, well, as I say, I think it's the the best technical training you can do at home during the winter. And also, I just really love it. Mm, absolutely. Well, maybe people could be sneaking out during this uh, the, the COVID crisis and sneaking a bit of night training in. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, you've... Uh, I guess going back to Team Miller, you had your um, uh, top result there for Sudetalia in uh, 
was third in 2011. Then you, you also had a bit of a player-coach role for, uh, for IFK Mora in, with fourth in 2014, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, those were kind of my two best kind of team results from, um, from Tia Miller. So I, I've been fourth twice with Mora and, and Sodatelia and fourth once with Calavan Rasti and third once with um, Sodatelia. But that uh, fourth with Mora in 2014 was particularly special, as you say, because I was coaching the team at the time. And I think that the team hadn't been in the top 10 for about 35 years and uh, nobody thought that we were going to be able to do it that year either. And then um, we just kind of stayed up there in the beginning and then stayed up there a bit more during the middle and then we were up there in the end and then we ended up fourth. So that was a really satisfying position um, considering the, the team we had and kind of what everybody's expectations of that team were at that time. I, I'd been running with Sodatelia before that and kind of everybody expected Sodatelia to be up there kind of in the top five every year. But moving to Mora, you know, one person commented, oh, so you don't want to win anything anymore then. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, not going to call them out? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's something I guess you've been moving slightly more towards now is a bit more coaching, a bit more mapping and a bit more kind of non-competitive contributions to the sport let's say and um i guess are you, are you getting just as much enjoyment out of that as as co- the competing side um yeah so i've always kind of looked to see what what else i could do around orienteering because you know you can't fill up your whole day with training certainly when i was um trying to be a professional athlete you certainly can't do nothing else in the day you would just get bored or i would anyway and then um later on it was like well how can I make a bit of money while kind of doing stuff in orienteering because obviously that's where I have my knowledge my experience and that's where I know people and so it it was absolutely kind of made sense to try and make a bit of money from doing things that I knew about like mapping and uh, use a bit of my coaching or use a bit of my experience and kind of technical knowledge do a bit of coaching as well so I kind of got into the coaching, not by accident exactly, but I kind of did bits and pieces, you know, worked with an athlete or two here or there, and then kind of got a bit of a development role, a bit of coaching role with Octavian Drubers, kind of when I'd finished university, and then uh, when I was in Sheffield, I was kind of doing a bit of coaching with S- South Yorkshire Orienteers and a bit of development role with them, and then kind of when I'd been living in Sweden for a couple of years, um, EFCO Mora, uh, approached me and asked me if I wanted to be their uh, their elite team coach and I thought that sounded like a really fun thing to do for a bit of a change because my kind of my job that I'd had in Sodatelia had been winding down a little bit so I was looking for something new seemed like a good opportunity there so I, I did that for a couple of years and I really enjoyed it uh, I did it kind of remotely so I was at that point living in Scotland and then spending quite a bit of time in Sweden coaching and on the training camps with them as well mm. uh, and then uh, a few years ago I decided for a bit of change again so kind of did a bit more mapping uh, there's not really been a plan to it it's more the opportunities have arisen at the time what seemed like fun and kind of using yeah the resources that I've got available and the contacts that I've got just to kind of do whatever whatever seemed like a, a good idea at the time really <laughs> but I, I do also kind of quite like giving back to the sport that's given me so much as well so uh, obviously I've got a huge amount out, out of orienteering over the years and I think that I know that so many people have contributed to that and it took more than I could, too many to mention but you know if I can help a few people in the same way that people help me then I think that's really a, the right thing to do mm. 
like you say, you uh, you kind of went through some coaching with um, with Octavian Drubers and and the whilst living in Sweden and, and over here as well. And what would that what would the difference be? Do you think between um, between those two philosophies, almost of the two club cultures between uh, Sweden and the UK? That's a, a big question. Uh, ben, I'm not sure. <laughs> you can go big or you can go small on the answer. Yeah, I mean the the, the one big difference I would say is that uh, in in Britain people go orienteering, whereas in Sweden people train to orienteer. By which I mean that. As a general rule, not every club is the same, but as a general rule, there are not very many clubs who have structured training sessions um, during the week as a general kind of activity. Uh, mm. In Brit- in Britain, you just tend to go orienteering and have orienteering events and orienteering races. You don't go to training or coaching courses. Mm. Whereas in Scandinavia, you, you might have a race every weekend, but then you'll do a, a training course on a Tuesday or a Thursday or both. And um, and the club will have kind of coaching, much more structured coaching set up for juniors and for beginners, I would say. And there, I mean, I guess the, if you're talking about the elite level, obviously there's a lot of uh, clubs in Sweden who have that kind of elite structure as well, where there'll be an elite coach in place, uh, and it works quite well because if you have, you know, if you've got between let's say ten and twenty people who are preparing for for Tim Miller or Jukola, then you can put on some really high quality kind of elite training for them which obviously other people in the club can take part in and enjoy as well mm. and what was the biggest challenge for you whilst you were living out there compared to now being here in the uk uh so i would say on a personal level it was definitely a cultural challenge rather than anything else um obviously on an individual level the the swedish people uh, were lovely and i got on really well with them but just trying to to kind of live in that culture as a kind of um uh, an individual going into it, living on your own, and kind of essentially when I moved out to Sweden, I lived in a cabin in the woods on my own, um, mm. and that was kind of very solitary. I felt very isolated. The social structure was very difficult. I actually ended up socialising a lot more with other non-Swedish people uh, who were kind of in a more similar situation to me. And I, I mean, mm. as I say, it's nothing against the Swedish people individually, but as a culture, they're kind of quite uh, insular. I found, and obviously, there's exceptions. But um, it, they're not necessarily easy to get into the kind of the social circles necessarily. I want to bring it a bit more back to the present, and we've talked a, a little bit about like the, the length of your career and, and when when you've had kind of motivation mid career. So how how do you still have the motivation to keep to keep going now? Um, you know, and how long do you think? Uh, you will stay competing um, at an elite level. Will what would make you decide to stop in the end? Yeah, so I thought a lot about this, and it's it's another really hard question to answer. I think because it's uh, so many different factors. I think the main mm. thing is that I just really enjoy orienteering, and I like mm. competing. I like competing at a high level. I like being competitive. Um, I'm certainly not in the situation now where I have as much time as I had before, either to train on a daily basis or to travel and to go on training camps, etc. But I still, I'm probably more dedicated in terms of my lifestyle now. So I have a better diet, I sleep well, I get good recovery. And actually I'm kind of quite um, 
dedicated in getting out training every day whereas before I might have potentially been a bit lazy you know you've got all mm. day but you still manage to leave it until kind of 8pm before you get out for your run whereas these days I, I do actually get out and do it because I, I want to get outside and enjoy myself and do the training um, I also think it's a lot about kind of the the opportunity and I've had quite a few setbacks over the years with illnesses and injuries and mm. actually that makes you appreciate the opportunity you have which is you know when you are fit and healthy it's it's nice to race it's nice to show what you can do and compete and I'm also in the situation where uh, with my work and my family situation that I can still train I can still get away and compete my wife is very supportive she has her own um, sporting goals obviously and we're both very supportive of each other and very tolerant of the other one going away and doing their thing occasionally so I think all of those factors combined kind of leads to me still being really kind of interested in competing as, for as long as I can. Would something like an injury or you know, change of change for situation maybe be ultimately be a deciding factor and it will force you to to unfortunately have to retire? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I don't say it would necessarily be unfortunate. I've had a, a really good <laughs> career already, and even if I couldn't do anything more, I would still be more than happy with kind of what I've been able to achieve. Yeah, obviously I've had my injury problems over the years. I, I missed pretty much a whole year in uh, mm. 2018 through injury, uh, which uh, made last year even more sweeter when I could come back and get back into the British team again. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm pretty much just in the mindset that I'll just enjoy it for as long as I can. And uh, while I'm enjoying competing and being in the team, then I'll do it. And if I'm not enjoying it, not not able to be competitive, then then I won't. Yeah, I think we we will um, soon wrap up with some quick fire questions. But um, obviously, most of the British season has been disrupted, and we're recording this around the time of the JK, uh, which for for many people is is the highlight of the season um, in the UK. What's your best JK? What's the best memories you have from the JK? What does it mean to you? Uh, yeah, the JK for any British elite orienteer is obviously a, a huge standout in the year. I think for a lot of people it's really is the pinnacle because obviously the the British championships unfortunately tend to be slightly um, underrepresentative these days. They're not usually selection races and the JK normally is. So you actually mm. end up getting the best field of the year at the JK normally, which means it's it's usually the competition to win in Britain. And, you know, it's it's got that history for however many years it's been running. Uh, 40 odd now, is it? And Something it, like yeah, that. Yeah, and you know that the maps are going to be the best kind of of the year, that the races are usually going to be the best of the year. Obviously, obviously, the fact that it moves around the regions has its pros and cons. You get some years when the terrain's a bit weaker and a bit stronger, but I actually really like that because I think one of the great things about orienteering is the variety. Mm. And, um, and I don't think it's enough to be the best orienteer in your backyard. I think it's really important to be able to do it kind of in all the different types of terrain on the different kind of... Um, different maps and different types of forest and open sand dunes and whatever else so so yeah the jk is fantastic and i've always liked uh, competing at it and um yeah so in terms of the most memorable ones th i mean there's quite a lot but the one that stands out was the one in 2015 in the lake district for me partly because it was before the world championships in scotland which meant that there were some national teams there from other countries so it was mm. probably the the highest standard international field 
um, <laughs> of any JK in in my living memory. Certainly, I know there were strong fields back in the kind of the seventies, eighties, nineties, maybe. Uh, it, the terrain was fantastic in the Lake District. The courses were good, and uh, I had a pretty good weekend as well. So for me, that was mm. the standout. Yeah, that Bigland Long was savage. I seem to remember. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was tough and long and hilly and technical, and uh, I almost blew it right at the end. <laughs> and the relay, like, the relay was just stacked as well. I think yep. I don't know how many Swiss teams there were or and Czech teams as well, but it's got to be one of the fastest relay starts I think I've ever seen or and or experienced at a JK. Yeah, yeah, that was a. Uh, is the whole weekend was really fantastic to be honest. Is, is there anything that you're missing about this year not being on? Uh, all of it. I was really looking forward to it coming back up to northern England. A few new terrains for me. I thought it was going to be a real different challenge to last year from the fast sa- mm. southern uh, terrain up into the tougher northern stuff. So, uh, yeah, I was looking to try and regain my title after last, after a couple of years. Mm. Maybe next <laughs> year. 20, 2021, r- crown retained. Yeah, well, obviously that's the target. I don't even know where it is next year, but I'm looking forward to it anyway. I'm is not it sure. Cornwall? Oh, it is Cornwall. I feel like it's definitely sand dunes next year. Being mapped by Ben Mitchell as well, so it should be pretty pretty good. He's re- reliably informed uh, informed me that it's good terrain. So everyone, get booking your accommodation now. It's going to be a good <laughs> year next year. Yeah, and for the Scottish people, start driving soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't get any further. Uh, Will, do you want to do your uh, quick fire questions? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm interested in these. So, um, your best and your worst orienteering memories. Uh, best memory. Let's go for World Championships gold. That's quite a good one. Yeah, that that'd be a pretty high, you know, high up on the list. I think. Worst memory is a bit more difficult. Um, let's go for something really obvious, like miss punching in the middle distance qualification in Japan. Going all the way out to Japan Ooh. and running one race and getting disqualified. That was probably pretty bad. Oh, yeah, that, that is a long way to go for, for, a, yeah, for one race. What, what was that like, just kind of finding that out? Uh, honestly, my memory of that race is heat and sweat and bamboo. And that's about it, really. <laughs> <laughs> was it just uh, green and pushing through it? Yeah, I, it was really, I mean, Japan, it was a, such a fantastic experience and actually uh, one of the highlights, kind of, you know, one of the great things about orienteering is the travelling around and going to the new places and Japan was absolutely one of the best destinations. Just not a great performance for me, um, physically, technically, mentally, but what what a what a week, what a, you know, I went out there and spent a bit of time before and a bit of time after and it was, yeah, it was fantastic. That's such such a nice thing about orienteering is you get you go to these places on the other side of the world and um, you get the opportunity to run in totally different kind of terrain. Mm. Best piece of advice you've ever received, uh, or could give? Don't orienteer as fast as you can run. Run as fast as you can orienteer. Oh, I like it. Punchy. Solid. That is good. And my, um, I've, got another, I've got another one as well, if I may, which is don't be afraid to stand still. Yeah, okay. no, that is very true, actually. Because everyone instantly feels like time is going incredibly faster than you stop. Yeah. And you're trying to solve the problem. Yeah. yeah. Especially in Eucala, when there's lights going past you. That is a terrifying yeah. moment to stop <laughs> and stand still. Yeah. Um, biggest challenge you've faced? 
Yeah, so I would say that uh, overcoming illnesses and injuries have been the biggest thing for me. So I just highlighting that injury from two years ago uh, when I mm. had adductor tendinopathy and in the beginning it took a long time to even get a diagnosis and it wasn't clear if it was a stress fracture or if I'd broken my pelvis or something like that. And then from the moment of kind of diagnosis, that was uh, three months without any training at all. I could I could Oof. go for wa- I could go for walks and that was about it. And then another three months of not being able to do any running, so that was kind of aqua jogging and some very light cycling, or mostly like swimming with no legs, that kind of exercise. Oh, uh, right, yeah. And then kind of building up the walking and doing some running drills where you can start running and doing like five seconds at a time and you know you're increasing in how many minutes you're allowed to run per week at the beginning and it's a a long slow process and quite honestly i thought i might never be able to kind of race competitively again and i certainly didn't expect to be able to get back to the world championships kind of the following year so um yeah it was six months all told without doing any running at all and you know, another three months after that to getting to the point where I actually felt like I could run fast again. Uh, yeah, so that was pretty tough. Yeah, well, that sounds pretty uh, pretty tough. I don't envy you on that one. Um, no, I don't, I don't recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> well, perfect time to for anyone rehabbing from injury now, seeing as the season is over. So yeah. anyone out there with an injury, you know, get on the rehab, get doing yeah. it. That's we'll be another back for top, next year. Another top tip, do your rehab exercises. Yeah, it's very easy to get lazy with those. Yep. Um, your favourite orienteer and or favourite rival, so favourite person you've competed against? <laughs> um, oh, that's a really difficult question because, you know, when you're as old as me, you've competed against a hell of a lot of people. <laughs> or who you've got to, like, when you finish, you go look at the results list, you know, who have you got to beat? Well, uh, let's start off by keeping it local to start with and going old old, old school. Uh, so it, it would always have been um, Mark Nixon um, back in the day because we're the same age. We kind of grew up fairly close to each other and we've been pretty competitive over the years. And then going internationally, oh, really difficult question. The one that springs to mind is that um, for quite a few years, um, I used to race against this Czech guy called Milos Nikodim and we always used to be ranked like one or two apart in the world ranking and they always used to start the race, the start list based on world ranking mm. and so for, for about two years we started within kind of four minutes of each other on, on like, <laughs> I would say on three, on three quarters of the races and so um, he's the one who springs to mind just because we almost always kind of finished you know, 30 seconds apart in the results having started two minutes apart Oh, fantastic! <laughs> it's weird you get those those small little random rivalries from the international yeah, stuff yeah. when when you see people all the time. It's uh, oh no, very funny. And um, favorite orienteering area as well. Obviously, Haywood apart for uh, for obvious reasons related oh, to Murray Strain. Yeah, well, I mean Haywood has got a special place in my heart. Obviously, uh, I I mean there's so many that. are good and there's again it's the reason that orienteering is so fantastic is that you've got such a variety uh i mean the, i think i have to say the trossacks because it's local Ooh. it's and it's um it's so special and it's hardcore it is really hardcore and i love it um there was a selection race there in 2008 wasn't there i think was it 2008, 2009? Uh, i think i'm yeah, some time around there i can't remember exactly yeah. which year I just remember having a 7k course that took me over an hour 
and being <laughs> amazed that, oh, you know, it'll be half an hour, 40 minutes, no worries. And I was broken at the end of it. And if I think I mispunched, actually. I had, a, I had a similar... That's pretty good going. <laughs> well, I had a similar experience to you in Japan. I, I got all the way around and then realised I'd mispunched and it was, yeah, about an hour and 20 for a yeah. six, seven K course. Oh, if you can go under 10 minute Ks on the Trossics, you're doing really, really well. <laughs> I think I'm remembering it very kindly. So that was our interview with Graham there. As Catherine said beforehand, really struggled to to nail down Graham's career into just a couple of focal points, but hopefully you all enjoyed that. And uh, we certainly enjoyed recording it with him and getting his insight into the whole uh, 2008 relay and um, you know everything that went into it. But but now we're diving a bit more into into the present and the last couple of weeks and what we've been doing and what hopefully a few, a few of you out there have been doing as well, which is um, Ralph Street's orienteering conundrum which this week has been a doozy so uh i believe it was how many brits have won tia Mila and dam clavin and i don't know about you Catherine, but i struggled i struggled well, with this one i know the answers now because ralph sent them to me so i can't go through i mean i i didn't even wouldn't even know where to start i feel like i've not been on the orienteering scene long enough let alone even been to a team tia Mila. Uh, and to be able to have any contributions to this, uh, you. So, what what did kind of you come up with then? We so said we said Ralph. Uh, we we noticed Ralph's humble brag last episode that he was on the list. But who else have you got? Yeah, so real real humble brag by Ralph there. Which uh, you know, if you can do it, I would. To be honest, so I, I've not got anything against him there. Um, so I I try to do this without any research and just off the top of my head and. Um, I ran out very quickly of people. <laughs> so I, I was thinking of people like Holly Orr, Cat Taylor, Heather Monroe, I'm sure must have won it at some point. Yvette Baker or Haig must have won it at some point. People like Steve Hale, um, Martin Bagness, uh, Jamie Stevenson, John Duncan, I know, has won it. Um, so I was coming up around somewhere between eight and ten people, maybe. Um, because I'm sure there's people in the 90s that must have that must have won it, and I just didn't know about. So, yeah, I was I was somewhere between um, somewhere between. T- let's go for nine people, nine Brits who've who've won either of Tia Miller and Dan Clavin, but I'm sure I'm wrong. Well, let me play you uh, Ralph's answer. So I believe that eight Brits have won Tia Miller, and I'm very very happy to be corrected if there are more that should be on this list. So two women, that's Yvette Baker and Heather Monroe, and six men, John Duncan, Dan Marsden, Dickie Jones, Colin McIntyre, Stan Hale, and myself. There you go. Oh, wow. That was pretty close, Will. Oh, close? Yeah, I'm actually quite pleased with that. (laughs) (laughs) I was sure I'd be miles out. So I'm I'm counting that as a win. I'm very surprised that it's... Um, six men and uh, only two women. That does surprise me. But maybe because you've got, because there's only five legs for the uh, for the women's relay. Maybe there's just more chance of, um, or there's more teams in it. So yeah, I guess there's more competition mm. to fight against. Yeah. So you, you miss some of the the older names, which is not very much of a surprise. But yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Well. Yeah, Dickie Dickie Jones. I'm not familiar with at all. I'm going to have to do some research on some of these guys. Um, because clearly the 90s, I mean, we knew that the 90s was a pretty strong GB team anyway, uh, with, you know, podium positions in the uh, the States in 1993. I think that's one of the best um, GB relay performances that's probably 
occurred alongside the uh, the 2008 Czech um, mm-hmm. Czech Relay performance. But um, yeah, Heverman, Rowe and uh, Yvette, Yvette Haig. So uh, hold, holding up the end for the women. I, I thought it would have been more, but, uh, but no. Yeah, you've got to brush up on your orienteering history, I guess. I do, yeah. I'm yeah. not enough of a geek. So before <laughs> the next, I'm going to do some proper, yeah, I'll try harder this week, I promise. Okay, well, this week, Ralph's um, set us uh, pr- kind of a similar challenge to the one Chris Jones set us a few episodes ago. So you've got to basically pick your damn Clapham team. In fact, let me let uh, Ralph uh, explain it to you a little bit better than I can. Hello podcast hosts, I hope you're both staying well and haven't had the misfortune of having to drive anywhere to test whether you can drive somewhere. Today's challenge is to pick an all-time British women's fantasy Tiamila Darmcarlin team. So the setup is there are five legs on the Tiamila women's relay. They are this year 7k, 7k, 10.1, 10.1, 5.6 and 9.4 and that third leg, that 10.1k leg is unforked so that might affect your team selection. So there we go, that's uh, the challenge, uh, we will put the list of people um, up, these have all been set by Ralph so um, we can't take any of the blame as to no. <laughs> as to any of the pricing. I think Ralph's actually, I think he's actually going to, he's explained how he's put together all of the different pricings. The pricing of the runners is based primarily on their results at Venla. So Venla and Yukula have a fantastic results service that you can go and search through. So what I've done is I've searched through them looking for British women and seeing how well they've done on their their respective leg and I've based the pricing of that. There we go. He was he he mm. is a bit nervous that people will think they've been valued too low. So um, be nice to Ralph is my message. Yeah, but any complaints you do have, um, I believe it's at Ralph underscore street on Twitter and he lives in Oslo. So fly over there, <laughs> knock on his door and um, he's just moved house actually. So probably he probably moved house, set this just so he couldn't get anyone coming around and, and picking odds with his, uh, his selection criteria. But it's, it's quite tough actually to choose, mm. uh, to choose your dream team. Um. We've I got would, the list in front of us, so you've got yeah. a budget of twenty pounds, and uh, yeah, so I mean that's an average of four pounds per runner. Uh, so who are you thinking, Will? Well, I, the, as always with these things, it's hard not to just go for your big hitters and then pick up people from the bottom. Um, but there's a couple of people who I think are real bargains. So Joe Stevenson, run for Sudetalia Nikvan for quite a few years, lives out in Sweden. I think she's a good bargain, a solid team relay runner. Um, and, and as Ralph said thinking about who you can put on the, the respective legs I think Grace Malloy coming in at £2 for an unforked leg she's not going to get dropped is she so I think may, maybe those two and I'm going to save the rest of my picks uh, in case anyone gets any, any bright ideas but I think yeah those, those two are going to form the, uh, the crux of my, my team in the middle there on legs three and four well, they're, yeah, they're only two pounds each, so you can really go for some big hitters on the on the other ones. To be honest, well, yeah, I could actually go for those two, get Fiona Bunn on last leg, and then have a vet and Heather on a uh, on my first 
um, on my first two legs to, to stick with the pack and break away. So there you go. Relay team picked. Well, hey, well, see if you can do better than Will. We're going to put it up yeah. on our... Not hard, uh, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, you've got to think about who's going to do each of the legs. So maybe a little bit more difficult than um, than the sprint relay one. So uh, we, yeah, really, really look forward to see um, who you've picked, who you think is overpriced, who you think is underpriced. Um, go go wild and enjoy. So uh, and look forward to seeing all of your suggestions. Um that's pretty much it for the this podcast thank you very much for listening we will be back again in another couple of weeks time with more interviews and news from the orienteering world amid this lockdown where very little orienteering is happening but we'll be back then (laughs) 